with everything else going on over there, with the loud fire alarm going off, with the other people screaming, with, with the radio traffic going on, and I hear her voice, and it's just faint, it's nonchalant. If, if you and I were having a conversation, as we are right now, and, and we're just in public maybe at a restaurant, and she were to say what she did in the, in the tone of voice that she said it, you and I probably wouldn't have even heard it. For some reason, I heard her as I stepped over her. And she said, help me, I'm going to die. I don't, I don't know why I heard her. Uh, I probably wasn't supposed to hear her, but for some reason I did. And I stopped right in my tracks as I stepped over her. And I, I looked down at her and I'm totally exposed right now. It's just me, there's no other, no other cops going in there. I got one probation officer behind me, another one that came up that I grabbed to take in in the conference room with me. And that probation officer is now covering me, but I'm totally exposed. I'm out in the open and I'm looking down at this female victim laying there on the floor bleeding out. She was dying. And she says, help me, I'm gonna die. Help me, help me, please, I'm gonna die. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Imagine for just a few seconds, you're a law enforcement officer, and all of a sudden, blaring over the radio is a call of an active shooting in progress. And you find yourself, in fact, fortunately or unfortunately, very close to the scene. And you rush to the scene to find an absolutely chaotic crime scene with bodies. And as you start your process of trying to piece this together, you find out, in fact, men with machine guns that have gone into a building that you've been to many times and have literally shot the place and everybody up inside. Today, we're going to talk with one of our first responders, Nate Scarano, a supervisor from the Criminal Intelligence Unit at the San Bernardino County Probation Department in Southern California. Nate was one of the very first responders on the scene of the tragic 2015 Inland Center terrorist attack. Nate, I welcome you to the show. Hey, Ron. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Can you just take us directly right to what that was like when you were in that car and you first heard about this and driving to that scene and what was going on in your mind at the time? Well, you know, it, it was really something that was uh, that epitomized sudden change. So much so that uh, uh, when I heard the call go out over the radio, I was inside my office uh, consulting with another supervisor on a, on a separate matter. And I heard the call and it was uh, Lieutenant uh, Madden from the San Bernardino Police Department uh, who was who was the actual first on scene, and uh, his description of what he was encountering just made my stomach turn. 
uh, I immediately grabbed my gear and, and uh, rushed out of my office and um, uh, ran to my vehicle, at which time I was contacting our dispatch um, to get further details on what was going on. Um, I got inside the vehicle, my car, and uh, I was uh, we had unmarked vehicles in that unit. Uh, so I uh, hurried on over to the scene. And so a, a number of things are rushing through my head uh, when I'm going there. I'm listening to the radio, trying to get more details. I'm, um, I'm trying to game plan what I'm going to do when I arrive. Uh, at the time, it was me and one of my officers in my unit who was trailing me in a uh, Ford F-150 pickup truck that was one of our unmarked surveillance vehicles. And we're trying to game plan what we're going to do uh, when we arrive. And, uh, you know, we're only outfitted with handguns with uh, Glock 9 millimeters. So we don't have all the fancy tools and everything of the long guns that many of the other law enforcement agencies have. And I pretty much had it inside my head that I was going to engage the, uh, the shooters and was probably going to be outgunned. Um, but with your active shooter training, uh, in which I've had several times and is actually, I'm actually a post-certified active shooter instructor. Uh, I knew that that's just what you have to do. You have to respond to the threat and you have to stop the threat with, with whatever means you have available. You know, Nate, at that time, did you have information that these people had assault rifles? Yeah. The, the information was, is that there were three shooters, uh, with, uh, with assault rifles and, uh, uh, and they were, they were actively shooting, um, everyone. It was something where uh, when, when the initial call went out, when I heard Madden talking with multiple bodies down, I, I knew right away it was going to be a bad situation when we got there. How, how were and, you uh, dressed? Did you have body armor? What, how were you dressed at the time? You're well, I was, I was in my armor. uniform. Uh, yeah, I was in my uniform, which uh, consists of black BDUs, a blue polo shirt with, with my uh, badge and rank, name, insignias, patches on the sleeves. My, uh, my stripes on the sleeves, uh, probation and gold across the back. Um, I had my, my full gear on, which consists of uh, my firearm, two extra magazines. I carry a Glock 17, um, so I have 17 plus one plus the two 17 round mags. Uh, my taser, my, my ass, my spray, uh, my, my handcuffs. Uh, so I was, I was geared and ready to go in that aspect. I had the right mindset, and I had the training for it. However, I got to tell you, Ron, that, uh, and this is a sentiment among many, many of the first responders that I talked to from various different agencies, some of which are longtime SWAT guys for, for many years. Despite the amount of training and mental preparation, nothing could prepare you for, for what we encountered that day. So let's get right into that crime scene. You show up at the scene, describe for our team members what that was like. What did you see, and and what did you do at that point? It was very eerie in the beginning. We raced down there through traffic, and at the Inland Regional Center, there's actually three different buildings. I'm familiar with where Ground Zero is because we've had training in there before. We The, the week prior to this incident, we actually had a probation graduation inside that conference room. So I knew exactly where this was at. However, other responding law enforcement officers perhaps were not able to figure out which building it was because there's three separate buildings. So me and my partner actually drove into the parking lot 
to the east side of the building where ground zero was, where, where the shooters entered, where, where it all started. And when we pulled up there, it was just my partner and I, it was just my officer and I. And when we got there, we're pulling in and you could actually hear my radio traffic when I go 97, when I go on scene, where I describe that there's multiple bodies hiding in between cars out there. And when we got out, it was just dead silence. So no gunfire, no gunfire, no no, suspects actually seen? No gunfire, no no indication of an active shooter at that time. I get out of my vehicle, and there are people poking their heads up and down behind bushes, behind trees, behind vehicles. And this is right outside the conference room. And they see me in uniform, and I hear a scream of, bring your first aid kit. You know, we got people shot over here. So I jump in the back of my, my vehicle in the trunk and I grab a first aid kit thinking, all right, because of my training, I'm going to go dump this first aid kit off and then I'm going to bypass the victims and go after the active threat. Hey, Nate, let me stop you just for one second, because to some of our listeners that are not familiar with how law enforcement are trained uh, to respond to active shooters, and we'll maybe talk about this towards the end of the program again, but you have to understand that the first duty of law enforcement is now to put down, to engage, to locate, engage, and neutralize any active shooter or shooters that are out there. So they are actually going to step around the wounded to engage the shooter, to locate and engage the shooter, because if they don't locate and engage that shooter, then they could be victims and they can't protect anybody. Right, Nate? That's exactly it. And basically what the rule of active shooter is, and this was learned from the Columbine incident in the late 90s, was the longer you wait, the more potential for, for uh, deaths there are uh, by, the, uh, by the shooters. Uh, the more time you give the shooters to shoot, the more, the more they're going to shoot and kill. So the idea is to, and the training is, to engage the shooter at all costs to stop him from mass killing, or stop them in this case. Um, so having said that, my plan was with my training, and that was I have to bypass these victims. I will give them the aid. I will, I will call for further assistance, but I, I need to go after this active threat. When I encountered the first cluster of victims, they were hiding behind a electricity box next to a tree next to the side of the car. And I walked up with my first aid kit in hand. My officer was about six feet from me doing overwatch, which is a, a cover position for me. And I saw a couple of the victims laying on the ground, and there were a couple of other, other victims on, on top of them. And, and these victims were just severely wounded. Uh, there was blood everywhere. It was, it, when I looked at them, I lost my breath. I, I, I was stopped in my tracks. I'm looking at them, and time just stopped. It was quiet. It was... It was, it was almost as if, it's, it's bringing me back right now, I'm sorry. Uh, it, it was almost as if your job, your purpose is to, to take care of these people right now. But that was against my training. However, as time stopped for me in this situation, it was, 
it allowed me to evaluate what was going on around me in a nanosecond. It was just, it was just quick. And I'm looking up at the conference room because we still haven't entered there yet because we're outside the conference room. There's glass shattered everywhere because when these idiots walked in and started shooting everybody, uh, they started spraying from the outside. They started firing from the outside, hitting people on the outside who were down in the parking lot and by the door. And, and Nate, let me let me stop you right there, because I think the general impression from all the news media uh, that covered this story was that the, the shooters simply went into that that meeting room and shot everybody there. But in reality, there were victims out in that parking lot. They were victims before he even got into the center and they oh, yeah. were spraying yeah. as they engaged the building itself. Is that not true? Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Uh, the, these guys, they got out of the car and they started firing from the outside as they entered. In fact, uh, some of the victims that I've gotten to know since this incident, um, they told me they actually heard the firing going on outside and thought it was firecrackers. Uh, they, they didn't know what was going on until they entered the building. Um, so it was, it was a devastating scene outside before you even get inside. Were there was there, Nate. Were there not fatalities out in front of the building before you actually entered through the the glass doors to get in? Yes, it was. It was. It was. It was absolutely sickening. It was um, right away when I got outside my vehicle. Uh, I, I knew that this was a a, a very very bad situation uh, because there was there were just bodies laying outside too. There was glass shattered. There was literally a river of blood that was coming out of the conference room doors onto the sidewalk, onto the pavement, into the uh, parking area, because the fire sprinklers had gone off inside the conference room. Ah, interesting. And so it was washing the blood out from the doorway area on and down in the the, um, uh, uh, sidewalk area, I guess you could say, or patio area in front of the doors where, unfortunately, a victim was, uh, was killed. Uh, in front of the doorway, and there was just blood everywhere. I mean, and, and it was it was just flowing. Um, so I'm looking at that from where I'm at, which is about 10 or 15 feet away from the doors, where I'm in a I'm, I'm in I'm in a parking stall basically, where I got victims down in between vehicles hiding and literally dying right in front of me. And again, I, I, I told you I can't breathe at this time. I, I lost my breath. In the meantime, I'm looking at a team. A three or four guys, cops, that are stacking up next to the conference room doors with long guns about to make entry. And I'm looking at them and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the people down in front of me and they're, they're begging for help. Help us, help us, help us. You know, she's been shot. It was one of the people that were down. I had two, two or three in front of me that were down with wounds. Other, other, and I will call them all victims. Even if they didn't get shot, they were still victimized by this incident. And they got blood on them, too, because they're sitting there trying to attend to their coworkers. And I'm looking up at the conference room and I'm seeing the guys stack up. I'm hearing over the radio that there's no that the guys have that the suspects have possibly fled in a dark SUV. I'm not hearing any active threat. And now I have to make this immediate decision, which was just in a matter of a few seconds, maybe, of do I stick with my training and bypass these victims and jump in on this stick that's about to get in the doorway here, or do I tend to these victims, get them out of here, and then go jump in the conference room? And you know, 
for, for our listeners, what Nate is referring to when he talks about a stick is that is a line of officers that are closely bunched up in a straight line, and they all have weapons on the ready, and they're ready to breach entry through that building. Nate, what was going through your mind at that time? Make a decision, make a decision, make a decision. And all, again, all of this was just in a matter of a few seconds. But it seemed like forever, because I'm trying to catch my breath, and time has just, it, time has just stopped for me. And I'm, I'm looking at these innocent victims bleeding out on the ground in front of me. And I'm hearing the voices of their coworkers asking me, please help us. Now, I remind you, I had that, that first aid kit in my hand still from the back of my car. I made the decision, Ron, and it went against all of my training. And I tossed the first aid kit, and I looked at my, my officer, and I told him, I said, put the back of your truck, put the, the tailgate of your truck down, of the bed of your truck, because we have the F-150, our surveillance vehicle. Right. I said, we're going to load these victims up, and we're going to get them out of here. And that's just what we started to do, and that's just what we did. We, we started with the first cluster of victims. We got everybody in the back of the truck, and as we were loading them in the back of the truck, more victims started popping up in between vehicles. Hey, over here, over here, I'm shot. Over here, over here, we got one down over here. And so we started loading up the F-150 in my Chevy Impala, which is another uh, UC vehicle that we had, undercover vehicle, surveillance vehicle, and we loaded up both of our vehicles. We got about 15 people in those vehicles, 10, 10, or, 10 or 12 in uh we had five in my Impala. We had 10 or 12 in uh, uh, the F-150. And what was very eerie about this, Ron, was I still remember it uh, as if it was right now. The vehicles were packed with people. We loaded up as many people as we could fit in there. And my decision was is I'm sending my officer out with the victims so that they could go get medical assistance. At the same time, I had been calling dispatch, advising them what I was encountering and what I saw and requesting for probation units to come and meet with me so that they could assist me and take my victims because I was heading back in the conference room. And the stick had already breached entry into the building. So the stick had already mind. breached entry into the building. Right. Yeah, the stick had already went in. Okay. And cops were sporadically coming at that time, uh, more of them. But they were coming from the west side of the building, the west side of the conference room side. So they're trying to get in on that side. They can't go. They got to go all the way around to the east side where ground zero is at where it was just my officer and myself. Nate, can, can you just take a moment? You're doing such a wonderful job about this. I've got an absolute vivid picture of this. Can you describe for us the chaotic crime scene that you were right in the middle of at Ground Zero? Well, Ron, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a, one of the most horrific things that you can, that you can imagine looking at outside of being which I can only imagine because I'm, I'm not a war veteran. But if you can imagine maybe a battlefield with just wounded and dead bodies all around you, people moaning, people screaming, people crying, people pleading, it was the most sickening and disgusting thing that I've ever encountered, ever thought of, ever pictured. Uh, right now, it still it still makes my stomach turn, and, and I think the thing that really amplifies this is these were innocent victims. 
these were not, this is the differentiation between a battlefield is these people were not soldiers. They're not armed. They're not trained. They're not warriors. These are your common folk, good people, good citizens, and they were just ambushed and slaughtered. They were a soft target for a terrorist to take advantage of. And, and while you're doing this, you have to maintain your situational awareness because you're still aware that even though you're not hearing gunfire, even though you're personally not observing armed suspects, in your mind, are those suspects, is there a possibility those suspects are still, have concealed themselves someplace at the scene and they're going to re-engage? And at that same time, you have to balance that? With well, a couple, yeah, a couple of things with that is, is not only that, Ron, but in, in active shooter training, especially as an instructor, they teach us about secondary devices and how, uh, you know, you have different waves of the attack. I was full on expecting to get, uh, if they weren't inside the building, if they had left in the SUV, I was expecting them to come back and start firing upon the first responders and or if they had planted uh, bombs or IEDs, uh, that they would set those off. And in, in, quite, in case in point, and I had no idea of it at the time, that's exactly what they did and what they were trying to do. They actually set IEDs in certain areas of the conference room and parking area uh, to take out the first responders. Um, fortunately, uh, they were uh, not the best bomb makers and uh, they could not uh, remote detonate the devices that were active explosives, uh, or I might not be talking to you right now. Right. Uh, because when we're loading up the bodies and when we're, we're doing everything uh, to assist with victim exfiltration, uh, you know, we're stepping over and near and around uh, those, those IEDs. Amazing. You know, Ross, what happened is uh, uh, we're, we're loading up the cars uh, in the parking lot, and um, uh, I'm calling for assistance over the radio. Probation officers are starting to arrive, and I tell my officer, hey, get these guys out of here. Go get them to medical aid. But here's the thing I was getting at before, Ron. These guys, I, we loaded up our vehicles, packed, to, to as many as we could inside these vehicles. I turn around. I'm looking. I'm scanning the area because I got my head on a swivel. Ron, I, I, I literally turn around, and I look at the cars, and I, I, I look at my officer, and I go, where the hell did everybody go? We just loaded up these vehicles. And he goes, boss, they're in the car. I go, what are you talking about? And I go and I peek my head in, and they were so terrified. These poor innocent victims were still so terrified that they had literally compressed themselves to the bottom of the bed of the truck, to the, to the floorboards of, of the truck in my car, and they're screaming for us to get them out of there. Is that, uh, you know, for those people that have not been in, stressful, um, uh, combat or, uh, you know, police operations like officer involved shootings as we have been in, uh, was that pretty consistent with the experience with you personally experiencing, uh, some of the psychophysiological responses such as diminished hearing and, and tunnel vision, because, you know, you're telling me also that time stopped for you. We experienced temporal distortions. I'll, I'll tell you what, Ronnie, and I, I have something that actually, uh, illustrates that point that you're getting at. And that is, uh, and I'll fast forward here in a minute, uh, but when, when I, I, probation officers show up, 
We get the F-150 out of there. I hand my keys off to another probation officer. He takes my vehicle, and they get them out, and they want to they wanna get them off to uh, medical aid, but medical hadn't medical wasn't there yet. There was no triage yet. Right. So there that was, was no... So that there was, was no amazing. ambulances. There was no fire. Right. So that was an amazing decision on your part, Nate, because, you know, normally the training is wait for EMS, let EMS triage and then let them load and, and transport. And, and you had to make the life saving decision of doing that on your own. I, I had to run. And here's the thing that, that really got me. I struggled for the longest regarding why I didn't stick with my training that day and bypass the victims. I was later told by victims, by family members of the victims, that on at least three of them, had I bypassed them, had we not got them out, if they did not get aid seven to nine minutes later, they would have perished. So it made me feel good that, hey, there is such thing as extenuating circumstances, and, and uh, sometimes you got to make a command decision that goes against your training. And that day, you know, we did the right thing by by getting those initial victims out of there and getting them to uh, to getting them the help that they needed. And, you know, that that's an amazing feat. And I can just imagine how difficult mentally that was for you. And, you know, God bless you for doing that, because ultimately it proved to be the right decision. And when we come back from our break, I want to talk to Nate a lot more about those feelings and about the procedures and the, the subsequent gunfight that took place between the terrorists and our law enforcement personnel. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and law enforcement officer Nate Scarano on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. So as we return from our break on a thread of evidence, we're talking with law enforcement officer and supervisor at the time, Nate Scarano, San Bernardino County Probation Department. Nate, you were talking about what you were observing, what you were hearing, and I had mentioned to you about the training, of course, we all get and some of the, the psychophysiological uh, problems that we experience in combat or in officer-involved shootings. Can can we touch back on that? Yeah, you know, uh, being on scene there, it was an overwhelming of the senses. You had you had a heightened sense of awareness. Uh, 
there was you're you're being bombarded by uh, sounds. At the same time, you got a lot going on inside your head because you're wondering where the shooters are at. You're thinking, is it, am I going to be ambushed? Um, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to act on your training. You're trying to help the people that are pleading, pleading for their lives for help, which is absolutely breathtaking. And and you're still trying to function and think clearly. Well. You know, Ron, you, you've always taught about the, uh, uh, you know, when you're in a combat situation, uh, the physiological differences and impacts that the body takes and that the mind takes, such as uh, the tunnel vision and the auditory occlusion and, 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 and things of that nature. This was very weird for me uh, because I experienced a, a dichotomy of that. And one example of that is I'm, uh, I'm engaging into the conference room. And I'm stepping over a victim laying underneath me, another one that was just severely wounded, shot multiple times. Uh, it was a woman. Um, she was in a dress. The wounds looked like they, they looked like beach balls to me. Uh, it's almost like when I'm looking at each of these bodies when I'm going in, uh, I'm trying to scan the area for the bad guys. But you have this, uh, you got the fire alarm that's going off in there, so it's super loud. The sprinklers have been going off, so it's wet. All these victims are wet, so when you pick them up, you just weren't experiencing the, the, the blood. You were, you were experiencing the, the, the water that they had been sprayed with. So when you pick them up, you actually got just literally wet. You're literally stepping in pools of blood, so it's splashing on your boots. I got the radio that's blasting with radio traffic. Again, the fire alarm's going off. I've got people screaming everywhere and I'm focused. And so at this point in time, I'm actually starting to tune things out consistent with the physiological response to being able to focus in on the target. I'm scanning, I'm scanning, I'm scanning. There are no targets. I'm stepping over bodies and I'm stepping over one. An unbelievable run is as much as I was able to tune things out, it also heightened my senses. So it wasn't just one or the other, it was both, which I haven't experienced before. In this case, what happened was, is I'm able to, to the, the idea of the heightened sense of awareness, I'm able to look at people's wounds, and again, they look like beach balls. It, uh, uh, this one in particular, she was shot in the leg, shot in the arm, and the wounds just looked huge. And, and, and they were, but obviously in my mind, they were even exaggerated even more. And while I'm stepping over here, I hear her faint voice, which I should not have heard with everything else going on over there, with the loud fire alarm going off, with the other people screaming, with, with the radio traffic going on. And I hear her voice, and it's just faint. It's nonchalant. If, if you and I were having a conversation as we are right now, and, and we're just in public maybe at a restaurant, and she were to say what she did, in the, in the tone of voice that she said it, you and I probably wouldn't have even heard it. For some reason, I heard her as I stepped over her. And she said, help me, I'm going to die. I don't, I don't know why I heard her. Uh, I probably wasn't supposed to hear her. But for some reason, I did. And I stopped right in my tracks as I stepped over her. And I, I looked down at her. And I'm totally exposed right now. 
It's just me. There's no other, no other cops going in there. I got one probation officer behind me, another one that came up that I grabbed to take in in the conference room with me. And that probation officer is now covering me, but I'm totally exposed. I'm out in the open, and I'm looking down at this female victim laying there on the floor, bleeding out. She was dying. And she says, help me, I'm going to die. Help me, help me, please, I'm going to die. Uh, she goes on to tell me where she was shot. She was very self-aware. It was amazing. And she's telling me I'm going to die. Don't let me die. And I lost my breath again. And now I'm in this conundrum again like I was before I got in there where it was, I got another one dying in front of me here. I didn't need to be a doctor or a trauma surgeon to know that this person, this person was in bad shape. And I'm looking at her. I'm looking at the conference room. I'm totally exposed. If, if those guys would have came and turned the corner and wanted to light me up, I was, I was, I was done. And I'm looking and my partner's behind me or my officer behind me. And I look down at her and she keeps telling me, don't let me die. And it was at that moment, Ron, that I made the command decision of, okay, my role now, I, I got no active shooter going on. I got no active threat. I got no indication that these guys are still inside this building. People are dying right now. We got other cops that are in there that are hunting these guys down. My job right now, God put me here today to help these people. So I looked at her and I told her, you're not going to die today. I, uh, I turned to my, my officer. I said, put your gun away. Go get your car. We're getting all these people out of here. And the officer looked at me and said, yes, sir. And then that's when I started calling all probation units over the radio to start making a train of vehicles outside to where we would start exfiltrating everybody we could. And we started with her that was on the ground. She ended up living. I heard that she only had a matter of minutes left. Um, and we started getting out everybody that we could. We put them on the hoods of vehicles. We put them on the backs of cars. We put them in the, the backs of vehicles. Uh, we strapped them down with, we, there's one where I put, I put one lady in a, a vehicle on top of one of my officers and just had him hold her so she wouldn't fall off. And we just had a conveyor belt of probation vehicles. And we had uh, uh, a number of probation officers out there that would literally show up. We'd load up the vehicle and then they would go. And then at that time, a number of other officers started coming in too to help us out. What was your point at transport uh, there, Nate, uh, over at St. Jude uh, near 40th or where did you go? Now, you know what? Some vehicles went different areas. We had uh, like the first vehicle, my first car with the Impala ended up taking, uh, that one went to ARMC. The second vehicle with uh, the F-150 that, that we loaded up, uh, uh, the bodies in there, uh, that one actually uh, waited outside until medical showed up. So they went across the street. The officer in that truck literally parked in a corner. The probation officer got out of the vehicle, gun in hand, and basically circled the wagon on the vehicle to make sure that there were no bad guys coming. What's kind of eerie about that one is you hear on his belt audio, one of the victims is like, do you have a gun? Do you have a gun? Do you have a gun? You know, basically, you know, please protect us. And he's like, I got a gun. It's going to be okay. I'm doing everything I can to help you out. Because again, medical wasn't there yet. They, right. we, were, we were there so early that triage hadn't been set up. So 
when medical showed up, they were the first ones to get dealt with uh, inside that that uh, F-150. How many of uh, your uh, probation staff ended up uh, responding to that? 272 officers throughout the day. Amazing. And we were in probation, and, and all the agencies did an amazing job working together and trying to make the best out of just a just a terrible situation. And that everybody worked together. Uh, uh, everybody moved together when when they were put on teams to go inside the buildings and and clear and things like that and do parking lot checks. Everyone did a really good job. Different agencies worked together uh, because you know we're all trained active shooter. Um, uh, it, it was just an amazing team experience and probation. I, I got to tell you, Ron, uh, for a probation agency that this is so far outside the box for what probation officers are known to do, or in this case, not known to do, probation was absolutely incredible. Well, you know, as a guy, as you know, that worked with your agency as a trainer for, for many years, uh, I was always very pleased with the fact that your agency was always in the forefront as far as doing proactive uh, enforcement as compared to, uh, you know, the other uh, probation agencies of which there's 57 other ones in the state of California. I always thought that yours was one of the very best, if not the best. Hey, let me move you forward uh, a little bit and let's talk about how law enforcement managed to locate and engage those terrorists. Can you, and even, you know, before that, let's talk about the terrorists. What was the relationship to that location and those people? Tell me a little bit about that. And those well, guys. basically what happened is, uh, and I'm, I'm not even going to say their names to give no, them any type that. of credit because they are, I'm with you. They, they represent just pure evil to me and they do not deserve any type of uh, recognition or credit uh, by by any means. However, you know, they still need to be addressed so we can learn from this situation. Um, long story short, uh, the the male shooter, uh, he was a co-worker. You know, he was there. It was a holiday Christmas event. Uh, six months prior to that, his co-workers, some of whom he shot and killed, had a, uh, a, a, a baby shower for him. You know, they, they took him in as, as one of their own. Uh, he was a health inspector. And uh, they basically had this Christmas, this Christmas event uh, training. Now, you know, when you're inside the conference room, you had a Christmas tree in there. You had Christmas decorations. You know, you had uh, all kinds of stuff in there that, that you would associate with, you know, a, a, a regular holiday party. And so what he did with his wife, who had pledged allegiance to their their ideology of extremism, these were jihadis, right? Yeah, these were these were uh, uh, yeah terrorists, and uh, uh, they had been planning for quite some time. Evidently, after the fact, you learned this uh, that they were going to commit some acts, and this apparently was one that just was a spur of the moment where he called up his his wife and said, "It's go time," basically. And so what they did is they came, he, he left work, geared up, and uh, came back and, and started to commit the, uh, the fatal assault on, on those innocent victims and innocent coworkers and people that you would consider to be friends and 
and uh, people that obviously showed care for him by by giving him a baby shower just just months earlier. And when they when they fled, where did they flee to? And and how did law enforcement locate and engage? Well, it, it, it's funny that you ask that because uh, the media has presented this in different ways depending on what shows or who you talk to. And I'm going to give you the inside scoop on on the primary way how they identified this person. If you remember when I was telling you about the, the clusters of people inside the uh, in between the vehicles outside in the parking lot, one of the victims, and this is while we're loading up the F-150, one of the victims was so scared that they were all scared, Ron, that the, the terror in their eyes stands out to me more than all the blood that I saw. That that was that just it just it's it's you can't you you can't describe it you can't mimic it you can't you you can't simulate it you just know that the life was just scared out of some of these people and and one individual one gentleman was latched on to the back of a vehicle on the on uh he was holding on to the um the bumper of a vehicle in the parking lot outside the uh the conference room doors absolutely terrified and he would not let go. So he's, and I'm in, so he's in a state of hypervigilance, right? Yeah. Panic, and, confusion, freezing, right? Yeah, and he's, he's locked on. Wasn't a very big individual, but he obviously had the, the scared strength, the, the hyped-up adrenaline going on, because I could not pull him off of this vehicle. And so I'm like, come on, buddy. we got to go. we got to go. It's time to get in the car. We're going to get you out of here. He goes, no, 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 no. They're going to come back. They're going to come back, and they're going to kill you. They're going to kill all of us. we we got to stay right here. And so I start getting information from him. I start talking to him to try to loosen him up a little bit. Well, hey, buddy, you know, tell me about them. What do they look like? What are they wearing? What do they have? And he proceeds to tell me there's two of them. They're dressed in all black. They're wearing Kevlar and they have AR-15s. And then he goes and he points to a guy who's hiding behind a tree not far from us. And he goes, and that guy, he lifts his hand off the bumper and points to the guy and says, and that guy over there knows who the shooter is. When he pulled his hand out, I grabbed him and basically put him in a twist lock to get him off the bumper. So I stood him up on his toes, grabbed him, and then ran him over to the truck and threw him into the truck. At that time, two police officers came up to me and says, how can we help you? And I said, go get the guy over there behind the tree. He knows who the shooter is. Those two police officers went grabbed the individual behind the tree who positively identified the shooter. And that's how we initially got the identity of the shooter. Because you're using what, what we refer to as CLETS or the California uh, Law Enforcement Telecommunication System. It hooks up driver's licenses and registrations and residences, correct? Correct. So what they did was evidently there was a, uh, a, a, a good Samaritan or good citizen that had seen the SUV flee. Uh, and they corroborated his information with the ID on the license plate of that vehicle to match the positive description in which the guy that I pulled off the bumper pointed us to with the guy from behind the tree. Excellent. And so, so, so when they did that, they were able to go and set up a team, which is also comprised of a probation officer, uh, on the residence of, of the male shooter. And uh, uh, that's how they initially ID'd him and began to uh, uh, conduct surveillance on him just prior to the, uh, the vehicle pursuit and the, uh, the shootout. 
how did the vehicle pursuit uh, begin? How did, did the cops run into him? How did that go down? Well, I, I wasn't there. I was on the tail end of the pursuit. Um, I, I, I didn't see it firsthand, but I talked to uh, the officers who were primary on it. Right, just from the debris. And, uh, yeah, basically what happened is is uh, they're, they're following him. you got unmarked vehicles following the shooters in the SUV. They get a, a marked unit, a police unit, uh, from that city uh, to go and engage. And there's, there's one from a city PD and there's one from a county agency. And as they pull up close to go conduct a, uh, a traffic stop, a car-to-car shootout begins. And basically what happens is, is the, the male um, suspect is driving the SUV while a female is in the back firing at officers that are trailing uh, from behind. And then that's taking place in downtown San Bernardino. What we later learned was uh, uh, sometime before that, uh, they were actually, um, you asked where they went. They, they, one of the things they were doing was trailing around the area of the Inland Regional Center, trying to detonate those IEDs that they set off. Wow. But uh, fortunately, uh, their, their detonators weren't, weren't up to par. That's absolutely amazing. When we come back from our last break, Nate and I are going to talk about what some of the takeaways from this incident were and maybe give out just a couple of tips on what citizens can do to prepare and to survive an active shooter situation. You're listening to America Out Loud, and this is A Thread of Evidence. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Blitz your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I am just absolutely mesmerized by Nate's story of heroics and survival. I, I, I can't think of anything else. Just all of the things, Nate, that you talk about with respect to how you were feeling, what your observations were, the temporal distortion, and for our team members, temporal distortion means that in a, a critical incident, um, time sort of slows down for uh, a lot of officers. I know it, it, it's happened to me on a number of occasions 
uh, in critical incidents. Uh, the whole issue of uh, diminished hearing, sometimes officers, uh, they, uh, they lose all hearing. That's called auditory occlusion. And, uh, but 15% of the officers had enhanced hearing. So if we're talking to Nate, and Nate is saying, I've got the alarm bells going off, the sirens are going off, the radio's blaring uh, in my ears, people are screaming, the water's going off, yet I can hear a lady basically nonchalantly almost whispering and saying, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and him being able to focus in on that and pick that up, absolutely amazing. Nate, what were some of the takeaways that you got out of this experience? You know, Rowan, the, the biggest one really is to uh, be prepared for sudden change. And it's it's something that, I, ironically, that morning on the way to work, I, I had a terrible feeling that something bad was going to happen that day. And my shift started at 7 a.m. And on the board in my intelligence unit, the big, we got a 10-foot whiteboard in there. I actually wrote, be prepared for sudden change across the board. And it was uh, three hours and 58 minutes later when the call went out. Um it, it, it's just that it's, it's be prepared for sudden change. It's uh, uh, if you're prepared for sudden change, when, when it happens, when it hits, uh, you'll, you'll be able to react to it and you'll be able to make some decisions. You won't be um, you won't be paralyzed in fear. Um, and then just make decisions, make decisions. And, and you, the best thing you can do is make a good decision. The second best thing you can do is make some kind of decision. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Exactly. And, you know, there's a there's an Army Ranger motto that the fire service and law enforcement has stolen, but it's a great one, and it's improvise, adapt, and overcome. That's right. Would you say that that was the case in this incident? I, I would say that's totally it, and I don't think that, uh, you know, you need to be some kind of uh, uh, elite operator or something to be able to get through a situation like this because I don't care how well you prepare a train. Nothing can prepare you for what we had to deal with at that day. It, it was just... Uh, it, it was a unique situation. It wasn't, quote unquote, supposed to happen in San Bernardino, of all places. You know, you don't you don't plan for these types of things. Um, but the chips fell in place for us as first responders. And uh, uh, we did what we had to do with what we had and tried to make the best out of a bad situation. Um, and uh, uh, my heart goes out to to all the victims, those wounded, the families to the first responders who are victimized too, that didn't suffer any physical wounds, but those of us that are still emotionally wounded from this, uh, my heart really goes out for, for all of them. You know, let me just interject something here because you raised a, a very valuable point here. And that is, and Nate, you know this to be true. You know, people just watch too much fake TV as far as police stories and, uh, movies and things like that. And, uh, people have to remember that police officers are human too. You know, we're yeah. trained to a certain extent. We're trained to compartmentalize, to focus, to have situational awareness and, you know, to use the trite but appropriate expression, run towards the gunfire when everybody's Sorry. running out. You know, and Nate, let me just say one thing because, you know, part of the, part of this program, one of my objectives in this program for our forensic team members and other listeners is that, we break down the mystiques and the fallacies of law enforcement 
because we're constantly fighting against these portrayals of us where we go out and we get in an officer-involved shooting and we dump a couple of people and, you know, we're writing reports five minutes later and, and you know what, after commercial break, we're back on the street. And that's just, that's just not the case. That, that's not the case. And, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, a, a lot of people refer to victims as those who were wounded or had died. Uh, there are a lot of victims, and, and I, I know several of them, that were in that conference room that lived through the experience that did not suffer a physical wound but are emotionally wounded to this day. Um, I will raise my hand and acknowledge, and, and I'll be the first to admit that, that I'm a victim. You know, I'm emotionally wounded uh, from that situation, and I still uh, go to counseling for it monthly. Um, you know, it's one of those things that if you were not impacted by such a critical incident or event, there, that's, there's something really wrong with you um, because this is not the norm. This is, it's not right. Um, and, and a lot of officers have, have suffered that. And, you know, you have different types of officers. You have some officers that are afraid to acknowledge that they need help. You have some that don't recognize that they need help. Uh, and you have some that, that don't know how to ask for help. And quite frankly, I was one of those guys up front that because I was supposed to be the tough guy and I was supposed to be the guy that's impervious to everything and supposed to be the leader for everyone. Um, I, w I was that guy who was, no, this, you know, I, it can't be me. And what I learned, Ron, was, you know what, it is you and it's OK to say it's you. And because I was able to step forward as a supervisor and as a leader in this experience, and, and raise my hand and say, I'm going to therapy, I'm going to counseling, I am taking into peer support. Uh, a lot of other officers stepped forward too, and they told me, hey, you know what, Nate, if you hadn't have done this, we wouldn't have done this. And you know, Nate, knowing you, I absolutely agree with that sentiment on behalf of your colleagues. And you know, and just for our listeners for a second, uh, Nate received the Medal of Valor, which is the highest award that any police officer in the United States can get, can receive. But, you know, Nate, I'm sure you don't see yourself as a hero. You see yourself just exactly as you described yourself, I think very accurately today, just a guy caught in the middle of it, just trying to do his job. Ron, I am, I am no hero, brother. Uh, I am not a hero. Let me tell you who the heroes are. The heroes are every single one of those victims that were inside that conference room that got out of that conference room and some that didn't get out of that conference room. Uh, the heroes are their families. Um, I've gotten to know some of the victims since then. And um, uh, we'll go out to lunch occasionally or, or just talk on the phone or chat. And I'll tell you what, their stories are absolutely incredible. You know, Ron, these are people that, quote unquote, ordinary people. These are people that are not trained for the things that you and I are trained on. These people are, are not are not warriors and yet they made it through this situation and the things that they have to live with and the, the sights and sounds that they have. And, and, and I have sights and sounds, they have sights and sounds and they are absolutely incredible. I have the utmost respect for all of them. They are the heroes. You know, Nate, unfortunately, uh, and I hate to say this, you know, we are, literally out of time on this show. Um, there is so much more to discuss, so much more that you bring to the table. Uh, what I Can I ask you to come back on a future show 
and uh, discuss more about this. You know, I'll tell you where I'd like to go with this. I'd like to have a show where you and I discuss active shooters and what people can do uh, to physically and, and mentally prepare to, uh, to survive an active shooter situation. W- would, you, would you come back for me? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I can offer something to you and, and hopefully uh, help some people put some tools in their tool bags, not just with the law enforcement training I have, but the things that I've learned from this from this incident uh, that are that are actual, actual practical applications of things. Well, I would so much appreciate, I know our listeners and our team members would so much appreciate that opportunity to have you back so just to share more of your experience and wisdom. You're talking to Nate Scarano a supervisor now he's been recently promoted he's kind of a big deal now he's a division director which is uh equivalent of a captain for the san bernardino uh, county probation department in southern california i'm your host uh, dr ron martinelli and you've been listening to a thread of evidence on america out loud